Brian, let's talk about fencing. You teach for the Department of Health and Exercise Science at UROC. I do. There's a one-credit fencing class offered every semester. Uh, there's an intro class, then an intermediate class. But actually, you can take either one if you're whether you've had experience with fencing or not. So we get a mixture of students who've taken it before and those who haven't. Everyone has a chance to start if they've never done it before. So I'm a what's called a monitor de arm. There's different levels of fencing coach certification. Monitor is the second of the four. So the, the first level is like assistant monitor where you're assisting some other coach and then at the monitor level you're assumed to be able to teach class and, and handle things on your own. There's prevo level which is one up from that, and then Matra, so master, is the highest level. So it's a kind of a continuing education thing where you you know, you know start off and king your way up. Progress. Mm-hmm. Several years ago now, gosh, 10 years maybe, we started a fencing club on campus. It was started by people who were in the class itself and wanted to do more fencing outside of class. And so they asked me if I would advise a club, and I agreed since I was learning to fence at the time as well. One of our members, uh, Caleb Anderson, decided to call it he thought the Sabre Rattlers made fun, uh, made sense because the UW Rock County Rattlers is our sports team. So Sabre Rattlers was very clever. You also teach for the English department? Right. My Most of my teaching load is uh, teaching English. That's my primary background, literature and, and composition. Mostly teach composition classes, so writing college writing classes. You also occasionally teach science fiction literature? Yes. Yeah. you got to keep yourself you know busy, so... Uh, I've always been a, a big nerd, big science fiction fantasy fan, and enjoyed that stuff. I'm a Star Wars fan growing up, and couldn't get enough of the of that kind of literature, you know. Right. So when I had the opportunity uh, here in Janesville at UW Rock County, I I developed a class, a science fiction course, put together a syllabus, and had a really great turnout. You know, the first couple times, especially people were really interested in it. I think it's kind of in the air right now, right? Science fiction has definitely risen up. Explain a little bit on, is the pen mightier than the sword? Probably seven or six or seven years ago, I had been fencing on campus. That's where I first learned was through the class that was offered. I was teaching, but I asked if I could join in. Pete Morey, who was the coach at the time, allowed me to do that. And we worked together for a couple of years there. And one day I just mentioned him in the hall, you know, we, we've been doing this work together so long, we should, we should teach a class together. And we kind of both laughed about it and like, wow, what would that be? And then I started to take the idea seriously. And I started yeah. really thinking about well, what, what could we do? And started thinking about the kinds of things I like to read and and thinking about classic literature, and there's a lot of sword fighting. And so we, we started to make connections and build a class. It was actually made up of three classes. It was a three-course series. There's a literature class where we'd study things like Beowulf and, and Romeo and Juliet and Song of Roland and a whole bunch of others. And then the students would also take a fencing class. The one-credit fencing class was offered. And if they wanted their interdisciplinary studies credit, which is this requirement, every student has to have some of those credits, they could take a linking seminar where Pete and I co-taught and talked about the connections between the classes and connections that we saw and explored that. And then they do a project of some kind and link them. What are some of the different types of fencing? I saw there is various forms. Yes. So there's a very wide variety. We might have heard of things like historical European martial arts, and there's that's more of people trying to recreate or recapture uh, historical sword fighting where with weapons that would have been used at the time. Then there's people who do what we call classical or what they call classical fencing where they're they're trying to create or capture a time period. You know, let's say the 1900s. Yeah. They're trying to do fencing like it was done in the sport of fencing in the early 1900s. What I do, what I work with, 
is modern sport fencing or Olympic fencing. So that's what you'll see if you watch the Olympics. You'd see that kind of fencing. It doesn't have a lot to do with self-defense, right? Some of the basic concepts are there uh, that are shared by martial arts throughout the world, but it's mostly about scoring a touch and getting a point and so on. Depending who you ask, people will call it three disciplines or three weapons. say weapons just because even though they're not really capable of hurting someone any more than a a stick. (laughs) So, but I guess you could hurt someone with a stick. But the idea in fencing is is safety. Every piece of sporting equipment you wear in fencing is designed to protect you, and the injury rate with fencing is lower than badminton, so it's not not dangerous. Yes, there's three different uh, weapons in fencing. There's foil, epee, and saber. They vary in how you score a point in the sense of if there's this concept called right-of-way and a target area, as well as the part of the blade that can score the touch. So foil and epee you can score with the tip, and saber you can score with any part of the blade, including the tip. And then epee, the whole body is a target, and foil it's just the torso, including the groin. And then the saber, it's from the waist up, including the head and arms, but not the hands. They vary uh, quite a bit, and they're very different in how they're fenced. In addition to some kind of athletic shoe, you know, a court shoe of some type uh, and maybe sweatpants, you'd be wearing a typical fencer, be wearing, a, let's say, a T-shirt. And then on top of that, you, you layer on the protective gear. So there's a piece of equipment called a plastron or an underarm protector, which just has uh, protects extra layer of protection around your ribs and on the side of your body where you're holding your weapon as well as the top of your arm. And then you wear the fencing jacket over top of that, which, you know, they're all white. Everyone's seen the white fencing jackets. They have a a collar that uh, is doubled over so that if a blade slips up, it catches in the collar and like that. And then there's the fencing mask, which is a wire mesh. It's kind of, if you've ever put your face up to a screen window, right, it's kind of like looking through that. Eventually you don't see it anymore because you're just used to it. And that's a strong wire mesh. They have punch tests and so on. And they have to, you know, get up to the standards. Yeah. And then you have a glove on your weapon hand as well to protect against an incoming attack. Your, the weapon itself will have a bell guard to protect your hand pretty well. But once mm-hmm. in a while, something sneaks through and whacks you on the knuckles. You know, it's like any sport, depending on how hard you want to do it, put in a lot of intensity. Let's talk about offense versus defense. Sure. Is there a big difference? Uh, what is the difference? In fencing, you have to be able to do both at any time. And a lot of, depending on the weapon, so now, now we have to maybe talk about right of way. So in yeah. foil and saber, there's this concept called right away, which means that the person who initiates the offensive action, the person who starts thrusting, let's say, towards an opponent. The person who begins that action has right-of-way. They have the right to the attack, uh, to finish that attack, and the defender has to do something about that, to stop it, either by making contact with the blade with a parry, or they have to get out of the way through movement. Once that's attack, o- that attack is over, then it can be, you know, if, it, if you stop the attack with a parry, you get the right to an immediate riposte, which means you get the right to attack right away. So it's kind of a, there's a back and forth element to it, more subtle than I'm explaining it to, and it, it all depends on what's happening in the situation, right? But so in, in that sense, there's definitely, you know, I'm attacking you right now. There's this kind of offensive motion that you're making or movement that you're making in saber and foil, especially. With Epe, we talk about counter offense. We talk about making attack, but making it safely, right? Because there's no right of way to, to protect you. And in fact, in Epe, both people can score. If both tips hit at the same time on a target, you can both score a point, which sometimes that's okay, but you can't win by tying. So <laughs> at some point, you've got to score a single light touch. To you, what's a high scoring round or match? So fencing bouts 
at a let's say at a tournament, you have a round of pools where let's say we have twenty fencers and we have four pools of five. Those each of those four pools, every fencer fences everyone else in that pool, and the outcome of that, how well you do in your pool, determines where you're seated in the direct elimination round. So okay. in the pool bout, those go to five points, first person to five. And then in the direct elimination round, where it goes up to the winner, people fencing each other based on their placement, those go to 15 points. How long can these go usually? So they're timed, except Saber. No one starts the clock in Saber because it's so fast. It just they, There's such an emphasis on attacking and, and aggressiveness in Saber that it tends to be over before the time would expire. But Foil and Epi definitely use a clock. For a full bout, it would be a three-minute round, and the time starts when the referee says fence, and it stops when they say halt. So it's only it's three minutes of fencing action, not just three minutes of real-world time. And then a direct elimination bout, you have three three-minute periods with a one-minute break in between. Talk about some of the pieces of literature from history that connect with fencing and sword fighting. So when we had the class a few years back connecting fencing and literature, one of the discoveries I made in the research for that was something in, in Romeo and Juliet. There's the scene... In Romeo and Juliet, where Mercutio and Tybalt are dueling each other, and Mercutio ends up dying in that duel. On the surface, you know, Shakespeare's stage directions consist of something like, and they fight, right? So there's not much there for a, a director to, to learn from and to figure out. Uh, and so I think directors typically just, just go with, you know, stage fighting, stage combat kind of training that they have. But what I learned is if we look at in the text itself, they talk about Tybalt being a fencer who uses uh, fences by the book of arithmetic, I think is the quote in there. Um, And they use that as kind of an insult. If you do some research, you learn that what they're talking about is that there's some Spanish training manuals that were very mathematical in their approach and almost Mm -hmm. mystical in how they were described in the magic circle and so on and these things, which doesn't have anything to do with magic. It's everything about geometry. They make that comment, and then if you if you follow that thread and, and research it, you find that there's a particular style of Spanish sword fighting that was used, and it's it's hard to of course I'm not I can't show people, but imagine uh, imagine the fencer standing fairly upright um, with their arm extended straight out, being the rapier in this case, um, and the idea is that you're making these precise movements, very small, efficient movements, fencing, and that's how you fence when you're using Spanish school in this historical method. But Tybalt is also described as being very angry and fiery and furious in this moment. And so uh, an audience at the time, seeing these two elements together, would immediately understand that there's something wrong, right? That there's something not right about what's happening in this scene. This is not just two kids out in the street kind of strutting around. And this is serious. This kid is, you know, he's studied by the School of Arithmetic, so he's supposed to be controlled and so forth, but, but he's not. And so... Uh, like I said, the, the period audience would see that and there would be muttering, I'm sure. And people would be like, oh no, this is not a good sign. And if you don't know that, right, if you don't, as an audience member or a director or whatever, you don't know that, then that's an element that gets missed. Yeah. Context is, is overlooked. I tried to, to cover some of those kinds of ideas in the class. We talk about those implications and so forth. I think of uh, Beowulf, which is you know the oldest existing uh, English work of literature. Beowulf is, I don't know how to describe him in modern, he's he's kind of a not a Superman exactly, but he's he's a very big, big tough kind of Viking type warrior. In that text, for instance, there's there's some strangeness happening because it's almost certainly it was an oral tale, but and it was a pre-Christian story. But then there's references where Beowulf 
you know, thanks God and so forth. So clearly there's a, a later scribe recording the story and adding in something to, to send a message. As far as connecting with swords, every sword he uses breaks. He's so strong. And I think that's maybe a, something that is used to show his, his prowess, right? Is to show how he is. Everything he, every time he tries to use a sword, it fails because he's just too strong. You also are part of a Madison fencing club. In addition to the Sabre Rattlers at UROC, I started fencing well, about 11 years ago. I learned here at UW-Rock County I was teaching. I was a, a new new hire, relatively new hire. And I heard there was a fencing class on campus, and I thought, wow, that's great. That's something I always wanted to do. And I had made friends with some of the other students on campus, and we had started another club. We'd started a science fiction fantasy club. And a few of those students were also in the fencing class. And so I, through them, I met Pete, who was the coach, and learned to fence. And eventually, after a couple of years, we decided we'd hold a tournament for alumni, right? So if you've taken the class before, we thought we'd have an invitational tournament. Invite people in and not worry about, you know, outside kind of someone coming in from Chicago who's really good and <laughs> everyone up, right? So we thought that'd be fun, just more of a get-together. So yeah. we did that, and I think the Gazette came by and wrote a story. got picked up by, I don't know if it was Cap Times or... I think it was a state journal, actually, the story. And so then... Mike Garrison, who's the UW-Madison fencing coach, as well as the club coach, saw the news story and contacted me. He was the president of the Wisconsin division, or the chairman of the Wisconsin division of USA Fencing at the time. Hmm. He said, come on up, I'd like to meet you. And that's his club in Madison, Madison Fencing Academy. He, in addition to UW, runs his own club. He asked me to come up. I learned that the fencing I was doing hadn't been updated since 1960. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I quickly, uh, quickly kind of got turned around in how I, how I thought of fencing and updated my, my training. And Mike trained me as a coach, and that's really where I got my coaching training. And since he and I have become very good friends, and I am one of his assistant coaches at Madison Fencing Academy, usually once a week, sometimes twice a week, depending and I did as part of another thing I did as part of my preparation for that Pen is Mightier class is that I went and took um, longsword lessons with a guy named Bob Sharon who lives up in Stoughton. He's actually nationally and worldwide regard highly regarded as a, an expert. But his his way of, of looking at the martial art was to look back at the manuals. He he focuses on a man named Fiore who wrote um, a training manual in 1409 that outlines in great detail, this, this martial art, but still requires, well, it's in, it's in Italian, so translation, but translation not just in the sense of the, what the words mean, but the references, and, you know, you have to understand a whole worldview, a whole culture to kind of understand what he meant by his different pictures and understand that the art is not showing necessarily one part of the movement but showing something else. So he's really knowledgeable and very fun guy. And so I, I did some training with, with Longsword. Pete and I actually did together, um, did some work with that, which involved a little bit of wrestling and, and, and so forth, but mostly we focused on the Longsword. Historical uh, European sword, depending on the length of it, is anywhere from two and a half to four pounds, which, you know, it's not that heavy, really. You know, the myth, the myth of the 20-pound sword is, is a myth. So finding a, a club with a... I think a certified coach is the most important step. Unfortunately, we're kind of in the backwoods as far as fencing. Although Chicago's not that far, you know, if you're willing to commit, but that's a big commitment. There are some local clubs, though. Anyone who's interested could go to the web, uh, wifencing.org. Lists our Wisconsin division 
website and it lists the cl- different clubs in the area. Well, throughout the state, but you could look at the area. Over in Delavan, there's a club called LA Fencing Club. It's A-L-L-E-Z, French. French for go. It's what a fencing director says when they tell you to start. I know they have a club. The uh, Sabre Rattlers Club is it's typically made up of students on campus who are in the class itself, although it's not exclusively. If someone were available kind of during the morning when we have our meetings, then they're welcome to, to show up. But usually it's it's not easy to fold in a beginner into that one. I think Rockford might have a club too if you want to check Illinois. Last I checked, they have a they have a nice one. And then the other club that we've mentioned before is Madison Fencing Academy in Madison. We actually it's actually Fitchburg. We have practices we rent space from the Eagle School, which is kind of the southeast side of Madison, I guess. Those are some clubs in the area. But yeah, finding a club on the web is a good way to you know, go and check it out. And you want to find a club that fits you. So you got to meet the coach and talk to the coach and get a feel for, for the people there and what people say about it. As far as how much money you want to spend, there's a pretty wide variety. Uh, you can get a decent starter kit for just a little over $100, though. So get going with it if you really, really want to have your own gear. But there's no need to buy your own right away. Some of that stuff's got to get kind of costly, right? It does. Yeah. But you buy it once, you're probably good, right? Yeah, it wears out. Some of it wears out. Eventually, your blade blade will break after you use it for a while you might decide you want to upgrade your jacket and get a nicer jacket or something like that or you might get a hole in something and you don't can't wear stuff that has holes in it Uh, (laughs) as you might imagine the the real danger in fencing comes from a broken blade and and you know murphy's laws if there's a hole somewhere that's where the that's where the blade will go you replace it but it's pretty infrequent i'd say every few years so that, that lasts you a while brian thanks for joining us